In this episode, I'm once again joined by Dr. Ben Joffe, anthropologist and scholar practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. This episode is part of a series in which we explore Ben's PhD dissertation on the Nagpa of the Himalayas, or as Ben calls them, wizards and socially engaged yogis. In the previous episode, we met the scholar, exploring Ben's life as well as looking at his research methodology. In this episode, we begin by defining the Nagpa, both in terms of traditional definitions as well as how the Nagpa exist and function today. We explore the various tantric vows associated with the highest yoga tantra yidam empowerments, including common misinterpretations about samaya and how hair and clothing style are often used as an outer expression of inner or secret principles. We look at how Nagpa develop their magical powers or cities, why they have often been viewed with suspicion by the religious and state authorities. And then finally, Ben recounts the story of a magical duel between sorcerers over local occult jurisdiction. So without further ado, Dr. Ben Joffe. Dr. Ben Joffe, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. The first chapter of your dissertation looks at defining the Nagpa, which is no simple task. You describe them as a tantric ascetic who maintains orthodox Buddhist philosophical orientations and ethical motivations in the midst of lay life and community. He's capable and altruistic sorcerer, a socially engaged yogi. As we get into this, can you tell us a bit more about what a Nagpa is, both historically and how they appear today, and perhaps touch on why they're such an ambiguous group to define. Yeah, uh, with pleasure. So, you know, uh, I often say uh, it's really easy to define Ngakpa in Tibetan because uh, there's one word for them, um, Ngakpa. And of course, as I explained in the dissertation, when, uh, you know, uh, t- Tibetans and native Tibetan Buddhists hear this term, it conjures up a whole complex set of um, sometimes difficult to pin down connotations, but quite simply, in terms of the, the term itself, ma in Tibetan means um, uh, mantra, as in, you know, the term we're familiar with, the, the speaking or reciting of mantras, sort of esoteric formula, um, spells. <laughs> Some people find that translation a little uncomfortable, but... Um, uh, and that can also mean uh, uh, mantra in the sense of secret mantra, which is the sort of emic uh, t- uh, term, the insider term for Vajrayana or Tantric Esoteric Buddhism. So very simply, Ngakpa is a ritual specialist in the Tibetan Buddhist context who uses mantras, um, who knows mantras, and who practices secret mantra or Vajrayana, who practices the... Uh, the methods of tantric uh, Buddhist yoga. Um, so sometimes Ngakpa are glossed as, as yogis, um, although this doesn't quite capture all the sorts of connotations I was talking about. So uh, we could say Ngakpa are essentially non-monastic, non-celibate tantric yogi householders. They are uh, members of a well-defined and understood community of professionally religious people, of religious vow holders, in the same way that uh, monks and nuns in Tibetan and Himalayan societies are. So, um, uh, whereas monks and nuns take vows of celibacy, they don't involve themselves in domestic family life or worldly work, uh, Ngakpa, as tantric specialists, uh, do all those things. 
they're able to get married, uh, maintain families. Um, uh, unlike monks and nuns, they uh, typically keep their hair long. And we can talk more about this possibly. Um, sometimes their hair is dreaded as a mark of their religious affiliations. They, they, they keep their hair in, in dreadlocks. Uh, typically their hair is long. But as I explained in the dissertation, also not always. So then on the other hand, um, while monks and nuns are typically based kind of professionally or for their full-time education or uh, ritual or administrative responsibilities in a kind of uh, single centralized institution, their home monastery and so on, you know, uh, ideally for their whole lives, maybe, uh, not but aren't really based in the same kind of centralized educational or religious institution. They, they practice at home as households. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's probably one of the most important aspects to uh, emphasize, that they are householder tantric ritual specialists who, while they may spend time uh, developing uh, expertise in uh, tantric yoga disciplines uh, through extended retreat, um, and while they may also study in centralized institutions for periods of time or even be... Um, the heads of those institutions, the heads of monasteries in some cases, um, there's sort of uh, classic location is in the village or in the home. They're, they're practicing high, deep levels of, of tantric yoga disciplines um, as householders. Um, and so I, I tend to avoid using the term lay people because you know these are roughly sort of Christian terms, which don't map too neatly onto tantric Buddhism or tantric traditions in general. Um, some, not by themselves, will refer to themselves as lay people. I know many lamas who say, uh, and scholars who say that Nakba are, are lay tantric specialists or yogis, or married lamas, you sometimes hear this term. Um, uh, I, um, I have a whole sort of discussion in the uh, dissertation about how different figures Contemporary and historical figures have grappled with this distinction between, okay, we're we're ostensibly doing things that lay people do. We maybe look like lay people or uh, behave like lay people, but we are a community of religious vowels. We are a community of renouncers, in the same way that monks and nuns are a community of renouncers from samsaric life and attachments. It's just we're 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 practicing and cultivating that renunciation in, in different ways from sort of different vantage points. Um, Tibet is really interesting in general because as a country, Tibetan and Himalayan societies are fascinating because Tibet in particular as a nation state sort of developed and promoted and supported at a high level uh, monasticism to probably a degree never seen in any other um, country but also right from the advent of Buddhism in Tibet supported this alternative uh, sort of community or orientation or mode of um, uh, uh, dedicated Buddhist practice, which is the, is the mode of the, of the Nakba, of the, of the, of the tantric non-monastic specialist. You mentioned uh, yeah, when you asked your question how it can be difficult sometimes to define Nakba, um, you know, it should, it, on the one hand, it's not. Um, it's, it can be quite clear from how Nakba look or what their living conditions are, 
you know, that they're not monks. Uh, but I think where the ambiguity comes in is that for various reasons, as I discussed in, in more detail in the dissertation, Nakba may at different times opt to kind of be less transparent. They may opt to appear very ordinary and, and very much like um, unremarkable lay people. They may not be uh, excessively signaling their religious affiliations or expertise or authority. Or, or they may do that too. Um, they may be uh, practicing and living together in large groups of fellow uh, tantric non-monastic vow holders, in which case it's very clear that you have a community of Nakba as opposed to a community of monks. In other, uh, uh, on other occasions, they may be living at home with their family and so in a way less visible. Um, and Nakba tend to have this ability to shift uh, uh, across spaces and between categories. Uh, my colleague, fellow anthropologist of Tibetan Nakba, uh, Nicola Sile, um, he writes that uh, to a certain extent, the monastic renouncer, monk, and Nakba, tantric yogi, uh, non-monastic non tantric yogi, operate as kind of very deeply entrenched, very uh, meaningful uh, poles or binaries within Tibetan and Himalayan societies. And um, there's a kind of constant uh, shifting back and forth between these two styles of religious practice. These, I, I, I opt for the term orientation to best describe them. Because um, if you start saying, well, it's, it's only about uniform, or only about clothing or appearance, or it's only about the specific practices that Nakba practice, um, it's difficult to define Nakba in those sorts of terms because monastic vow holders may dress in a sort of Nakba style in specific contexts. And to a very large degree, uh, monks and nuns with, uh, who are initiated into advanced tantric yogic disciplines um, are also doing very similar practices. To It's actually quite difficult to find any practices within the sort of gamut of Vajrayana that um, only Nakba or on, uh, only Nakba do that aren't at least sometimes also potentially done by monastic renouncers. So I think where the ambiguity comes in too is about these sorts of historical developments that happen where um, uh, highest yoga tantra practices um, uh, particular tantric yogic disciplines that become very important in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, they're, they're, they're widely practiced by monks uh, as well as Nakba. Um, so, you know, kind of carving out terrain that is exclusive to, to Nakba and is never uh, uh, encroached upon by monastics or, you know, it, I, I think of this more as a kind of spectrum, as a set of orientations that that are really fundamental to the cultural logics of um, of Tantra and, and Tibetan Tantric Buddhism specifically. Um, and we see what's fascinating for historians and researchers is, is to see how one individual in the course of their, their individual life or particular societies or patterns of uh, political and economic patronage or whatever may, may sort of tend towards one side of the pole or um, uh, and w there might be moments in history where there's a lot of stress on, on clearly demarcating <clears throat> these orientations or, 
or or blending them or, or uniting them. So so it's really interesting. I, I would make clear that uh, the way Tibetans typically speak about Nakba verse monks is as uh, you know you often hear this term Denyi, the two communities or the two groups. So um, uh, almost invariably, when Lamas speak about Nakba verse monks, they bring up uh, statements uh, uh, in, in, in you know historiographical uh, acknowledgments of. Uh, how right from the beginning of Buddhism in Tibet, it was sort of formally, consciously decided in a way. Usually it's said that Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, the freewheeling uh, tantric sorcerer and Buddha from uh, India, uh, Udiyana, who himself was a Nakba, he's the paradigmatic Nakba for Tibetans, um, non-celibate, non-monastic, long-haired, tantric thaumaturge, uh, uh, sort of someone who has ritual expertise through practicing tantric yoga extensively, who can then, you know, use that uh, to accomplish various goals that, that benefit others. Um, so th these texts will often say that, you know, in the 8th century or so, when Buddhism was really entrenching itself in Tibet and getting state support, uh, these three important figures, Padmasambhava, original, you know, OG Nakba, um, uh, Shantarakshita, um, who sort of stands in, uh, in a way, as the tradition from India of monastic uh, vowelholder practitioners and orientations and commitments and institutions. Um, and then uh, the Chudya, the Dharma king, Chusam uh, Detsen. Um, and so you have these kind of three representatives of different orientations and also different forms of authority, religious and political authority, who it is said come together and kind of by decree say there shall be two communities in Tibet who legitimately uphold the Buddha Dharma as professional vow holders. And those two communities are the community of shaved headed, uh, so sometimes it's said saffron robed, clothing is often used to demarcate in the present and historically in these sort of formulaic ways, um, uh, bodily comportment and clothing. So on the one hand, we have um, Rabjung, you know, the, the um, monastic renouncers, and, and their community governed by their specific set of vows and expectations and modes of proper conduct, types of social organization, styles of education, institutional uh, um, institutionalization. Um, so, so that's one community. And then the other community is the Nakba community, which is often blasted as the Gukar Jangote, the community of practitioners who are Gukar. Um, they, have, they wear white clothing as opposed to monks and nuns. And they have Janglo. Um, uh, uh, so this is a poetic illusion. Jiangxing uh, is like a willow tree in Tibetan. Lo, loma is a leaf. So it's a reference to kind of the matted hair of a, of a, of a yogi or a, a, a retreatant, uh, an ascetic, who's not really spending their time practicing primarily in the kind of university-like space of a monastery. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so sometimes Ngakbara are at home Sometimes they're in a cave. Uh, sometimes they're with their family. Sometimes they're the head of a religious encampment. 
sometimes they're a, a treasure revealing prophet, uh, a charismatic leader, um, initiating large groups of people. Sometimes they're just a private practitioner who has a day job and kids, but you know has has great levels of expertise in tantric yoga. Sometimes they're itinerant yogis. Um, but typically, when Tibetans hear the word nukpa, and so this is this is a kind of distinction that maybe we could talk about um, more. Typically, the kind of cultural connotations, the sort of implied sense, what we might call the ethnographic sense um, of the term, is not not just simply uh, the non-monastic practitioner of tantric Buddhism. Um, it's more the idea of a village ritual specialist who is more often than not someone who inherited that position, that job, as a kind of hereditary vocation. And this is typically patrilineal. So it's fathers transmitting religious expertise and social status to sons or uh, uncles to nephews. It's uh, almost exclusively masculine in the historical sense. So while the idea of being a tantric yogi is not specifically gendered, and this is something we can talk about more, tantric yoginis have always been an essential, uh, fundamental, original part of the landscape of, of tantric Buddhism in Tibet. The idea of nakpa as sort of, as like social role or social function is very masculine. Um, and, and has consistently been so because it's 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 essentially a kind of patrilineal uh, inherited vocation. The Nakba then sort of is positioned as the as a certain kind of ritual specialist who's understood to have by virtue of not being a monk, um, because as we know, monks and as I mentioned, monks and nuns also practice uh, tantric Buddhism at a very high level and always always had in Tibet and continue to do so. So it's not just that Nakba are tantric specialists, because monks are and nuns are too. It's that there's a connotation that there's that that there's you know there's certain areas of ritual expertise that they are associated with. So as the village shaman or tantric wizard, uh, Nakba are typically called upon uh, to engage in uh, sort of maha yoga style practices. Um, deity yoga practices. The idea is that a, a nappa is somebody who has really uh, dedicated themselves to yidam sadhana, to to the sort of inner yogas of the Nyingma school scheme, or highest yoga tantra in the uh, Sarma school uh, schemes. Um, there are people who've spent a lot of time cultivating uh, meditative identification with the yidam, with the tantric Buddha. And by virtue of uh, that experience in retreat, that experience with sort of uh, Maha Yoga, Anur Ati Yoga styles of meditation, they have actualized Siddhi. They um, uh, have a, a, a power, Nubla, um, or at least pretensions to power, at least the expectation that their training will have given them some ability to perform even low level uh, uh, rites in order to benefit others. So the sort of classic role of the village, the humble village Ngakpa, uh, or the just common garden variety local Ngakpa, um, 
is to use mantras, to use tantric sadhanas that they've mastered and the methods and technologies sort of uh, involved there to heal sickness of humans and livestock, to uh, avert uh, negative forces, exercise demonic influences, um, uh, control the weather. That's a historically very important role that they've had sort of that sort of distinguishes them a little bit from uh, um, monks and nuns because they're they're not monastic and so they often have a closer association. In my dissertation, I talk about them having, in, in, in various senses, a kind of a closeness to to the wild, potentially polluting nature of worldly life. This gives them power, but it also um, positions them in a way that where there's always this sort of anxiety or concern that maybe they're too worldly, or they're actually they're practicing tantric yoga in a worldly way with worldly motivations. Perhaps they do have power as a result of their um, uh, meditative training, but can we be sure while they're living at home with wives and kids and consuming alcohol and having sex that that their uh, motivation? In doing those practices is correct or not samsaric, that their renunciation is legitimate. Um, so, so they sort of embody the, the highest promise of non-dual tantric Buddhism. And we, we see this easily in the fact that Sanginiva, the second Buddha, Padmasambhava, who is the reason there's Buddhism in Tibet, uh, as, as the legends go, he's called in because he's a He's called into the country because, as a Nukpa, he's understood to have a very wrathful kind of expertise, an especially cultivated ability to deal with the most demonic, most kind of uh, unruly of forces, both inwardly and outwardly. So we hear stories about him being sort of called upon by Shantarachita, who says, Monk, you know, I, I know Tantra, but I. I'm not, a, I'm not an efficacious tantric sorcerer like you are, and I don't know how to transform and really directly engage with and um, work with and, and bring onto the path kind of the most like aggressive demonic clashes, and then also in a more external sense, kind of demonic influences, such as when Guru Rinpoche, you know, uh, successively tames the autochthonous uh, indigenous spirits or demons of the Tibetan landscape. So hopefully in all this rambling, you can start to see already a kind of, a kind of what I'm talking about, this, this idea that, that Nukpa represent as a, more a mode or an orientation or a style um, of practicing Buddha Dharma and Tantra specifically. And so, uh, yeah, they would typically be called upon when you needed sort of aggressive Tantric measures to uh, tame and repurpose demonic influences. And so controlling the weather, cosmologically speaking, involves quite aggressive. Uh, one needs a certain form of expertise to do that, to manipulate, uh, as one wishes, the, the sort of spiritual agencies behind uh, weather patterns or ecologies or whatever. Nakba uh, also associated with funerary rites, um, the practice of chip strongly associated with uh, Dzogchen teachings and the transmission of Dzogchen teachings. So, yeah, I think, I think that's, <laughs> I've already said a lot. Um, 
but very simply, they're long-haired, shifty tantric wizards who um, are householder practitioners of tantric yoga. That's fascinating. So I'd like to pick up on several of those points. And something we were discussing just before we started recording is about the issue of ordination. And I'd also like to ask you about the vows of a Nagpa. You mentioned that both monastic and non-monastic practitioners have vows. And that's something that is one of the reasons why they may not be called necessarily lay people. Maybe you can unpack a little bit uh, this issue of ordination, uh, which is quite interesting. And maybe also give a sense of contrasting between the sorts of vows that a Nagpa would take um, versus the sorts of vows that a monastic monk or nun would take. Hmm. Um, well, I think the reason why this gets confusing for a lot of people is, because, is, is as, as I mentioned, historically we've seen monastic institutions and monastic individuals and monastic vow holders in Tibet being sort of some of the primary figures who are receiving and transmitting tantric teachings and initiations and who are sort of the, um, the, they're the primary demographic involved in, in, in the dissemination and preservation of tantric yoga. I mean, numerically, in terms of just uh, uh, the size of that population, you know, it's monks who, who uh, are in charge of that historically. Um, so, yeah, it gets confusing because you have monks who are holding monastic vows um, who are also engaging with um, highest yoga tantra practices, which would seem to completely overturn those vows. And, you know, this isn't my confusion or my anxiety. This is a long-standing historical one. So we have a great body of sort of exegesis from Vajrayana practitioners, you know, from bef from India and then within Tibet trying to uh, sort of work out the appropriate way in which monastic, you know, often we hear in, uh, uh, in Tibetan context these kind of three levels of vows, the individual liberator vows, which are sometimes called somewhat misrepresentatively or in a slightly derogatory way, the Hinayana vows, um, and then the Mahayana Bodhisattva vows, and then the vows of secret mantra, the Damsik or Samaya, involved in becoming initiated, uh, uh, receiving an initiation or empowerment into a, for a sadhana for a particular yidam, uh, and becoming a practitioner of uh, uh, of those tantric yoga disciplines. So monks and nuns do this all the time. Not only do they receive initiation into highest yoga tantra, uh, into yidam deity yoga practice, uh, but they're frequently the ones who are uh, have the authority and expertise to transmit those empowerments. Those initiations. Um, so, I think previously you were interviewing Ian Baker, where he mentioned that there's 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 significant reason to suggest that some, as these highest yoga tantra kind of most secret, most esoteric uh, technologies of tantric yoga in Shaivism and, and Vajrayana were, were developing in India, there's reason to believe that they were. Maybe I'm, I'm cautious about saying originally, uh, but that they certainly seem to be practices for householders. Um, you know, uh, Vajrayana initiation at one time in history required the literal practice of sexual yoga, at least in some uh, contexts. So glaringly non-celibate, non-monastic approach. 
but then monastic uh, renouncers were becoming involved in these initiations and the and the techniques meditative techniques associated with them and so having to justify their involvement and then also potentially um, uh, sort of shift the ideas about what was required for initiation how vows were maintained as one became involved with different levels of practice. So we have these very interesting, complicated, multiple schemes of understanding how these three levels of vows align, you know, in the single person of a of a Ngakpa monk, of a of a tantric ritual specialist who also happens to be maintaining their their uh, monastic vows. Um, when it comes to Ngakpa, uh, you will sometimes hear people today say, you know, that they've been ordained as a Ngakpa or that they've received Ngakpa ordination. And so this is a slightly tricky concept and it's been a little bit controversial because some people have said, you know, that that's, that's an oxymoron, like ordination implies monastic vows. What, what does that even mean? Um, what exactly is this ordination right for Ngakpa? We're not familiar with it. Well, I think on a very simple level, um, in the same way that, on the one hand, ngakpa kind of, as a term, has this broader, more inclusive meaning, simply someone who practices secret mantra, who's been initiated and who practices and has made gains from the practice. So that could technically be a monastic, but no one really uses the term to mean that. No one ever calls the Dalai Lama a ngakpa, except in context where it's very clear that people understand that they're saying he's a monastic, holder of tantric vows and pra pra practitioner of tantric practices. Um, but, you know, I mean, to be a ngakpa, uh, essentially, one has a guru um, who one has the proper relationship with, and one receives the, the classic familiar, familiar to some uh, initiations of, of secret mantra, of highest yoga tantra, uh, for a particular yidam or several yidam. And um, the idea of Samaya, which many people have heard about or are anxious or, or confused by, uh, Samaya is kind of folded into the empowerment or initiation right. The, 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 the sort of introductions that one gets, uh, the, what is demonstrated ideally to the initiate or the, the one about to become the initiate during the empowerment ceremony, those sorts of realizations or um, that, that new perspective on, on the nature of reality that's sort of been uh, given or transmitted to, to the initiate by the guru um, is then sort of maintained and protected subsequently through whole, you know, uh, observing the, the damsik, the binding pledges, the uh, tantric level vows. Um, and so often we hear people talk about sort of these standardized, gen, more general lists of tantric vows, 14 root vows, things like this, eight thick uh, supplementary vows and so on. Um, but something that you don't often hear people talk about as much is um, the fact that Samaya is, is largely relative to and specific to a particular empowerment ceremony. Um, so if one's guru is a lineage holder of, say, one practice of deity yoga, is a, is a master of one particular uh, yidam or, or, or tantric uh, uh, Buddha, meditational Buddha, um, 
then you know one gets empowerment into that practice and maybe the cycle of texts and sadhana is associated with this. And so specific cycles of texts or specific yidam practices will have unique samaya, unique tantric vows associated with that practice. Generally, tantric samaya is really at its heart about community. Uh, in the broader sense, when you when you boil a lot of tantric commitments down, it's about maintaining the proper perception of the guru, the proper dynamic between the guru and the student, the proper relationship and and and, and uh, a mutual perception, supportive perception between initiate and co-initiate. And it's often expressed in the language of a family, the kula, um, your brothers and sisters who are co-initiates within a kind of this charged space of the of the new tantric family of the sort of initiatic spiritual family or, or coven, um, depending on your aesthetics. Um, uh, so those are general ideas that are common to a lot of different sadhanas, right? A lot of different the sort of we can see them across the breadth of, di- of very specific and differentiated practices. Very. Often the sorts of things that we see Ngakpa doing as part of their regular uh, sort of ritual observances, but as I said, not always doing, such as dreading their hair, allowing their hair to dread, wearing particular kinds of clothing or accoutrements. You know, the reason this is done is because in within the empowerment ceremony, uh, they will be sort of uh, given the empowering blessing. Uh, to 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 make use of these these contrivances, you know, dreaded hair, um, earrings made of human bone, or, and things like this, or a certain color clothing as tendril, as um, supportive connections, as auspicious uh, links that produce kind of the inner realizations that they kind of instantiate in a more physical way. So. Um, some people will say, well, you're an Akba, but you, you don't have long hair. And so, you know, then, then this is where more confusion comes in. Um, some Nakba routinely receive what's called a Rawang or a Tawang. It's kind of subcategory of empowerment um, for the hair, where the empowering Vajra preceptor will, during the, in the context of the ceremony, say, okay, as part of your meditative identification with the Yidam, the yidam has heaps of dreadlocks. You you must grow your dreadlocks to remember that. Or you must wear your hair in this fashion because it also reminds you of the state of awareness that you should be not forgetting at all times. Another tip, you know, namely an uncontrived, natural, simply as is, perfect as is, sort of uh, unembellished style. Um, so it's during... Uh, the the granting of empowerment that these kinds of uh, commitments are sort of introduced. A more personal example is, um, you know, I'm I'm an initiate into the Yutoknintic tradition, which historically has been quite specific and sort of uh, especially associated with professional Tibetan physicians and especially Ngakpa physicians. And so, during that empowerment, there are portions of that empowerment where medical implements are brought out and shown to the initiates. And these are ordinary medical implements, scalpels, you know, the tools of, of everyday doctoring, worldly doctoring. And and they're shown to the uh, uh, attendees, 
as the uh, empowered implements of the Yidam, the Yidam for the Yotokniyantik cycle. And you are told, don't forget that when you hold your scalpel as a doctor, you, are, you should be conceiving of yourself as doing that as an enlightened Buddha. Your scalpel is the, is the knife which slices through dualistic conceptions that are the root cause of suffering. Um, and then in, in line with that, uh, the sort of written explanation in the Yutuk of the different levels of vows and how one should properly understand them, one level of the vows says, in addition to just, you know, doing your daily practice as the yidam for this cycle, while you are doctoring in your everyday life, sort of the post-session, between-session moments, you need to have a non-dualistic perception of your patients. You need to see your patients as deities or as your family. You need to feel towards your patients the same way you feel towards your Vajra brothers and sisters or co-initiates. You need to... Uh, perceive the pus that comes out of a patient's abscess, actually says this, as a dog or pig might. You must think of blood pus and infection like a dog or a pig might, um, not like a human might. Um, and this is part of a kind of a spiritual commitment. So so that's Samaya specific to the Yotoknyintik that makes sense for not but doctors and you know, some people have uh, aren't thinking of themselves as an Uppa or attempting to become an Uppa, but they may attend an empowerment for, say, a trauma Nakmo, um, uh, a Yidam such as trauma Nakmo, where often the empowerment procedure includes uh, a portion uh, where the hair is specifically empowered or consecrated and pointed out, introduced to the initiant as 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 a sacred abode and so you don't you know there's different levels at which this is described but you don't cut the hair because city you know infinite cities upon cities of dakinis are in each strand of hair on the head and in the body um, and this is part of the 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 commitment to not forgetting one's fundamental identity with with that meditational deity so I just wanted to point that out. It's not like there's a Nakba tradition or a Nakba set of vows. I mean, there is insofar as anyone who's initiated into highest yoga tantra who's not a monk is arguably a Nakba, at least technically, because what else would they be? Um, if they're practicing tantric sadhanas and they've received initiation and they have a guru and they're not living in a monastery and they have a family, but they're trying to uh, maintain the pure perception of themselves as the leader, and then it's like they're an Akba by, by default. But, you know, in your question, you were saying, you know, many people attend empowerments today, and they don't really know, they don't know all the details, or they have varying reasons for being there. And this has become normal. This is, this is typical in Tibetan and Himalayan contexts. You know, I mean, I don't know if we mentioned it in the last interview, but I think at the end, yeah. But, you know, I mentioned that, you know, illustrious figures like His Holiness the Dalai Lama will, will stage empowerments. Uh, you know, in the Kala Chakra uh, tradition incorporates varying levels of sexual yoga too. Um, and people will attend and receive uh, uh, initiation into this, uh, this scriptural tradition set of practices. And 
95% of those people are not going to abide by all of the, the, the specific ritual commitments. Um, they may not even understand what's being asked of them or what this involves, like you said. And so their reason for attending, it's become more normative to be able to go to an empowerment just for the blessing and the benefit of being there and the good karmic imprint without any intention to be a sort of professional tantric householder, um, uh, a pro professionally religious person, because um, that's a big ask. Um, and, and so are people who happen to not be monks or nuns, who go to an empowerment and have a teacher, are they nakba because they did that? Or are they nakba even if they understood some of the, 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 the dimensions of the empowerment and then they wear uh, you know, the, the requisite clothing and they are sure to style their hair appropriately or not style their hair appropriately, um, wear all of the implements of a heruka, chaktung, blood drinking, uh, tantric yidam, you know, does that make them a ngapa? Well, this is a question that continually came up in, in my thoughts and in conversations with people and I discuss in various ways in the, in the dissertation. And it, it is a tricky question, you know, like I mentioned in the dissertation that in my experience, sometimes just saying the two terms, inji and nakba, one after the other, inji being a kind of white passing Westerner foreigner. Um, you know, many Tibetans I spoke with would just sort of go like, <laughs> when they heard those two words together, like they all under, they'd all seen non-heritage convert uh, converts to Tibetan Buddhism wearing nakba shawls um, or with long hair or dreadlocks or human bone earrings or, or what have you. They then are well aware that non-Tibetans who weren't raised in, in, in Buddhist worlds were were calling themselves nakba or attending empowerments or even doing intensive tantric meditative practices. But there was often a general sentiment of like, this doesn't really follow this is a bit of an oxymoron because, as I said, sort of one layer of what a nukba is, is it's a hereditary vocation. It's a cultural job that requires quite a lot of kind of socioeconomic structures to be in, cultural structures to be in place to enable that sort of vocation and the training, intensive training that's understood to, to go along with it. So. For a lot of Tibetans I met, they said, yeah, I mean, these people could have been initiated. They could grow dreadlocks. Um, they could present themselves to the world as nakba. But for many Tibetans, this seemed extraordinarily presumptuous because they sort of had an inkling that a lot of these people hadn't had the, unfortunately, you know, hadn't had the luxury of like parental supervision in the practice of tantra or retreat. They sort of had a dim view of the possibility that these people were, you know, back in New Jersey controlling the weather uh, for uh, a local community or averting hail or exorcising demons. I mean, to be fair, many Tibetans had a dim view that that's what their own Nakba were actually doing or that they were deeply trained or that their power was real, or that, that they may also have been showboating or, or alternatively were, were poorly trained. They were kind of like a poor man's monk. There were no monasteries in this village, so we just have a bunch of raggedy family nakba who know a couple of rituals by rote, and we go to them when 
because they've, they've, they've kind of, they've nailed a few things, but um, uh, we don't sort of regard them very highly. Um, so, or who are these Ngakba who are going around getting money to do rituals? You know, maybe they have power, but perhaps they are, you know, are they which side of the force are they on? Um, you know, uh, do we know their aspirations and motivations and background and so on? So I don't want to make it seem like uh, that this is a, a sort of uh, a, a specific kind of like racially prejudiced or culturally preju prejudiced idea, but Tibetans look at non-Tibetans who have received uh, initiation and have teachers and they just, I think, rather reasonably think, okay, well, how, how feasible is it that individuals like this knowing kind of their life as lay people uh, outside of a traditional Tibetan context, how feasible is it that they've had the opportunity or the time or the support to, to develop the kind of ritual expertise, the sort of ritual literacy and experience that um, native Tibetan Buddhists typically associate with good Nupa anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, some people, and then this leads to the whole separate issue of during the empowerment, you may be expressly told that you have to maintain certain accoutrements or appearance because it's part of the sort of sacralization. It's part of the kind of continual identification with pure, pure perception, with the yidam. And so some would say that by not wearing official nakba uniform or by not growing once, you know, after one's received the chawang, the hair empowerment, chawang, if one, classically, if one sort of refuses or, or fails to, uh, you know, deal with one's hair in the appropriate fashion, one is, is technically breaking that specific ritual commitment for that specific sadhana. Um, but frequently we see a lot of Tibetan authorities and lamas say, you know, look, um, it's also very easy to, to just fixate on the external trappings, to become hyper-spiritually paranoid about uh, orthopraxis and sort of forget the point Forget the the spirit of why why you're bothered. I mean, hair doesn't turn. You know, a haircut can't make you into a Buddha, but it it can be um, tendril. It it can, if understood with correct view and applied with correct conduct and motivation, it can be extraordinarily supportive, empowering tendril, uh, uh, auspicious, uh, uh, aligned circumstance for you to maintain and experience realization. Um, it's sort of this, again, according to this tantric scheme of outer, inner, secret, aligning those levels in this very powerful way. But many Nakba told me, you know, just dressing the part or even, you know, uh, obsessing about uh, the, the, the breaking or not breaking of, um, of ritual commitments, of sort of daily or, you know, most sadness have like a sort of best case scenario, middling scenario, worst case scenario for daily practice commitments, monthly practice commitments. And those sorts of ritual obligations that, that gave your friends so much anxiety, um, your acquaintance, it sort of assumed that they will be broken. Um, so let, maybe I should explain that a little more clearly. Um, you know, there's this great sort of statement that's attributed to Atisha, 
he said he's talking about the three vows, the Dompasum that I mentioned, of which there's this kind of very ex elaborated literature. Um, and he says, you know, I'm a monk. I'm a Buddhist monk. I never break. I've never broken my, my individual liberator vows, my Hinayana vows. Um, you know, I've remained a monk, I've celibate. He says, you know, I, I frequently default on my, on my, I forget bodhicitta, I default on my bodhisattva uh, vow. And he's like, I, I default on my tantric samaya all the time. All the time. Moment to moment. And so he says, this is why we have practices like Vajra, sattva practice. This is why we do tsok, um, gana chakra, puja, gathering of co-initiates. This sort of loving, empowering, uh, renewing familial get-together where uh, members of the of the initiated circle get together and support each other you know help, help their homies and part of that is, is um, uh, confession um, which sounds very dire but it's basically just a public statement of like yeah I, I, I lapsed in my samaya I forgot that I was a perfect empowered uh, Buddha I failed to act with swift, incisive compassion and wisdom. I was mean to you the other day. I, I, I behaved in this small way towards you as my Vajra's sister or brother, which harmed your practice, which dented your confidence. I thought ill of, of the mentor who's supposed to provide a model for my own spiritual um, uh, you know, advancement or, or, or practice. So. There are all of these mechanisms built in to, to sort of the regular ritual curriculum of, of, uh, of tantrikas that it sort of assumes that you, you the sort of the, the beauty and the value of, of, this, of the pledge is that you forget it and then you remember it. It's a bit like mindfulness meditation, you know, your vigilance and your attention lapses. And it's in the moment of bringing it back that, that the magic happens. You know, and you can't just be beating yourself. The practice isn't beating yourself up about about deterioration of samaya. If you didn't care about your deterioration of samaya, then it's better not to even bother to try to try to observe and uphold that, because it's a spiritual discipline. It's a cultivation. It's an ongoing cultivation. So many lamas will say today, kind of in general. I've heard this many times, and it's it's a wonderful reminder. They'll say. The, the Nida uh, has said this in our Karma Mudra book too. The, the the essence of samaya for you know tantric practitioners is family and friendship, is repairing and maintaining friendships. Friendship sounds a bit hokey and sort of not especially profound, but it's such an important kind of way of understanding spiritual practice in the tantric context. Uh, community and friendship and mutually supporting relationships it's, it's difficult to to remember what you are um, if, if you have friends on the road you can do that you can get together and kind of uh, uh, mutually support one another in that way that's that's the real power it's friendship with yourself and your own true nature it's not having a bad relationship with your own nature um, uh, it's friendship on many levels, actually very profound, I think. Um, but I have noticed the tendency today that a lot of people sort of, they, they equate just the, this, the term in general, Samaya, to well, what are these obscure 
ritual responsibilities, which I probably haven't fully even understood. Um, and I'm desperately afraid of defaulting in them because I will go to hell forever. Um, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't worry about their specific practice commitments or try to understand what they are. But I, I guess I'm just trying, I've, I've gone on this long tangent now. <laughs> but um, I hope that sort of answers in some ways that, that issue. Uh, I, you know, I wish that, that the term inji or non-Tibetan Nukpa didn't seem like such a punchline or an impossibility to a lot of people. But I think we also just need time to develop those supportive conditions, um, culturally, socioeconomically, that would allow more householder yogis to get deepened expertise in, in sadhana practice and, 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 and learn how to cultivate their capacities so that they could really like uh, give those back to the community. Like I mentioned, I, I sometimes like to think of Nakba as specifically socially engaged yogis. There are other yogis who are not so socially engaged because they're they're at somewhat of a literal or symbolic remove from worldly life and problems. But like I said, sort of classically, the Nakba is in the village. Um, he's sort of the, the shifty wizard who um, uh, uh, can provide, can sort of pay it, pay it forward a little bit after having committed to, to sadhana practice, there's the, um, what do you do then? Well, you altruistically, with bodhisattva intention, apply tantric methods um, in the correct fashion to, to benefit those who are sick, humans and animals, to, 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 to do something. In the dissertation, I talk about how Dr. Nida described this kind of next step as um, in the sort of language of love or friendship. He says, you know, you can tell people you love them. I think there's one part in the dissertation where, where I say this. He says, you know, it's very easy to tell your partner in a worldly relationship, oh, I love you, I love you, but how are you showing it? Um, uh, in a way, Nakpur are supposed to be the people who bother to actualize city and then bother to apply it um, to, to mitigate worldly suffering while never forgetting the ultimate goal of Buddhahood. That's great. Let, let's talk in a bit more about city in specific. Uh, you write here, We can thus see that as mantra wielders, Nagpa's primary training, their core mode of cultivation, revolves around the service and accomplishment practices of the Yidam, i.e. data yoga. These procedures involving the entrainment of body, breath, speech and imagination through liturgical recitation coupled with complex inner visualization procedures, enact increasing stages of intimacy with the deity, through which the ritualist draws progressively nearer to the meditational deity, eventually coming to experience complete inseparable union with it and its enlightened qualities and capacities. Crucially, it's through increasing self-identification with the Yidam that Nagpa come to master the definitive accomplishments as you say, the Nyudrup or the Siddhis, that the spiritual yogic powers of the four rites or tantric actions, powers of pacification, the curing of diseases, calming of adverse conditions, imbalances, etc., increasing, increasing riches, resources, intelligence, memory, prestige, etc., controlling, exerting influence over humans, animals and spirits, drawing people and things to oneself, 
and forcefully subduing or destroying, utterly eradicating enemies, adverse forces, obstacles, etc. And I think listeners perhaps will recognize these sorts of cities from the stories of great masters and yogis of the past, like Padmasabhava, for instance. I'm interested if you could talk a little bit about how it is that progress in deity yoga is said to bring about cities and how these powers are said to be used today. What you've witnessed in, in the area of cities also. Um, so, of course, we're, we're dealing with non-dual tantric spiritual traditions here. And so there is a sense in which it's not that one is is producing something that isn't already there, right? I think that's an important general disclaimer. Um, any cities that can be actual, you know, I prefer terms like actualized or unf unfurled or discovered rather than produced. Um, you know, I mean, there's, I have a section in the dissertation where I talk about conversations I had with Nakba, where there's sort of or, or, or other sources around Nakba with this kind of acknowledgement that Nakba are thaumaturges, this fancy term focused kind of magicians, sorcerers. Um, there are other non-Buddhists who also do magic. Um, so what makes Nakba different? How do, we, how do we prevent the possibility that Nakba sort of degenerates just into non-Dharmic sorcerers? And this is often one of the classic uh, sort of uh, critiques or, or, or sort of narrowed eye gazes that is um, uh, sort of shot out at, at Nukpa, um is this idea that, you know, they're just a bunch of stinky wizards who were unscrupulous, dodgy wizards. Um, dodgy because they might have pretensions to real power when they don't, and or dodgy because they have real power, and what are they doing with it? Um, so I think there's always been an understanding, you know, Vajrayana practitioners have historically known that um, other people are practicing tantric technologies. I mean, you can just, in India, you could look over the garden wall and you could see Shaivites and uh, other groups, you know, doing very similar things. And so it's, it's interesting, um, a lot of sort of instructional texts for Nakba are, are quite clear about Nakhbar will say, you know, practice Tantra in a Buddhist way. Um, cultivate cities, because it's possible to cultivate cities without Buddha Dharma or uh, Bodhicitta. It is. All Buddhists recognize this. They just also recognize that it's the best way of doing it is, is as a Buddhist, um, the right intentions. So this is a whole interesting question itself in terms of cross-cultural dynamics. And we... You know, that, that could be a whole other conversation. There's some very interesting stories about Tibetan refugee lamas coming into new areas in India and Nepal and sort of confronting other categories of ritual specialists who sort of, who do similar work just in different ways with a different kind of understanding of reality or, or set of intentions. And, and uh, this is very interesting. Would it be appropriate to tell one of those stories now? That sounds very interesting. Um... I'll come back to it. I just I want to talk a bit more about city and the four activities um, and what I've seen in terms of uh, how this works. You know, this all seems very lofty. You know, uh, you hear stories of uh, Padmasambhava, you know, his miraculous feats. But I think it is very possible to just um, 
to see the way in which this is true for Nakba. And part of the reason why I love working with my teacher, Dr. Nida, as a Nakba and physician is because he comes from an environment in Tibet, from a community in Tibet, where Nakba are go-to uh, figures for everyday problems. Um, and, you know, one of the, the classic ways in which we see this kind of more in the camp of that first, you know, in Tibetan, called leshi, you know, the, the four activities, the four karmas or actions, the types of tantric activity, kind of practical applied magic, if you like. Um, people don't like the term magic. I do, <laughs> obviously. I'm fine with it, but um, I understand some of the reservations. But yeah, the pacifying activities are typically about curing disease um, and imbalances that lead to disease. So. Um, like I said, Nakba are mantra users. Um, they're mantra wielders. They're people who've sort of activated and actualized the potential of mantras through recitation and through uh, uh, ascetic discipline. And so, you know, um, it's a very common possibility that someone might have you know, a cataract or they might have um, an abscess or a painful tooth or bad dreams or headaches. and uh, Nakpa will use tantric methods. They will use pacifying mantras. Uh, this, uh, what this often looks like on a very simple level. I mean, uh, it's interesting to look at this kind of these small applied everyday rites of healing. Dr. Nida has really tried to kind of um, familiarize more people outside of Tibetan communities with these kinds of methods. Um, typically, you know. Uh, I, you mentioned the nindro, you know, the, uh, the these stages of of, uh, of practice with the meditational deity. So ideally, one is spending extensive periods of time in retreat and accumulating hundreds of thousands of recitations of the deities of the Yidam's mantra while visualizing, you know, when one has dissolved oneself into emptiness, one's perception of one's ordinary ineffectual self into emptiness and has re-arisen as the Yidam. And, and, and like I said, one sort of gets increasing stability and confidence in that identification. And, uh, uh, you know, there's different sort of schemes for understanding how this works. You know, like what, how can just saying a bunch of verbal formulas over and over by yourself in a room allow you to manipulate reality? Well, that's a whole other... Uh, question, you know, there, uh, uh, which would require talking about the subtle body, um, ideas about the channels, what, as we mentioned in the previous interview, what speech um, even is um, ontologically, uh, what reality even is, how perception even works. Um, but essentially, one is using Yidam practice to discover one's nature, to, to move beyond conceptual dualistic uh, attachment and aversion, to discover and rest in one's nature, which has the interesting side effect of producing city, um, and according to Buddhist teachings. And so the idea is that someone who has done extensive yidam practice is, is not like someone who hasn't. Um, they have more nubha, uh, more mantric power. They have uh, uh, actualized that power. And so them saying a mantra um, is going to have effects that someone who just 
received the mantra from a teacher through oral transmission who's only ever said it three times would have, right? So, um, but in practice, you know, the uh, yidam sadhana might be quite elaborate and involve um, various sort of technical stages. But when a patient might come to village Nukpa, they have familiarization with yidam practice they, and with the use of mantras. And so they can quickly say, uh, treatment doesn't require taking your patient into a three-month retreat and guiding them through this process. They can quickly say um, mantras that they have made efficacious for themselves and others. So what this often looks like is uh, uh, it, it's sort of the, the, the tantric Buddhist uh, the word like scheme of magical efficacy. It's the alignment, the, the tendril uh, of three levels. Um, what's sometimes uh, referred to in Tibetan as de, um, which means substances, materia, um, you know, different colored threads, mustard seeds, salt, butter, water, you know, gross material substances that are kind of supportive uh, uh, conditions for, uh, uh, you know, these practical tantric activities or methods. You then have mantra as the next kind of component. Uh, which means speaking of mantra, but also the visualization of seed syllables and so on. Um, and then you have um, samadhi, uh, uh, meditative uh, focus and absorption. Uh, if these three things are coordinated, then simple actions can become empowered and magical, if you like. So w what it might look like from the outside is someone has an abscess on the side of their cheek and a nakba might... Um, take uh, some uh, oil and recite mantras quickly into the oil and blow into the oil to consecrate it and then anoint that um, uh, abscess. They may heat the abscess with a stone, which is uh, uh, being uh, consecrated with mantras. The, uh, um, this is all sort of in combination with their maintaining of meditative concentration, of identification with the yidam and so on. So um, the, these things are often referred to as letzok in Tibetan, which literally means, again, that word le, actions or activities. Tsok means, not tsokpa means uh, uh, miscellaneous or assorted, or kind of just a collection of different things. So once one has sort of got that incredible familiarity with the yidam, then typically, cycles of, of tantric texts or, or, or sadhanas for a yidam, they'll usually have appended to them a, a letzel, um, which is kind of like some useful, it's almost like a recipe book, um, some useful, uh, uh, usually very sort of, very outline forms, because it assumes that you're a chef, you already know how to cook, you don't need to be told where the kitchen is or what, a, what an oven looks like, or how you get food to cook with. It just sort of gives you some very quick um, skeletal uh, instructions. Uh, we could call them spells, um, applied spells. So they say, okay, you've spent several years mastering um, Hayagriva, uh, Vajrakilaya. Here, you know, some great master who themselves had done that, he or she could then write a letzok, which says like, and, you know, I'm very interested in this as, as a scholar and practitioner. I don't quite know where these lets all come from. Well, I do. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're inherited. So they're repurposed lets all from 
from a scriptural tradition that has quite an old pedigree, frequently Letzoka Terma, so they're sort of newer texts. And so we don't really know, like we don't know if um, this particular Nakba was maybe just in retreat meditating, doing Yidam practice, and then the Yidam spoke to them in a vision or dream and said, you know, here's a really nifty way, a, a nice pithy way to avert hail. Or if you're finding it difficult to manage these kinds of demonic influences, try this. Um, and then it's possible that those things then get written down and sort of passed on to students, and, you know, maybe somewhat institutionalized. I think there's different ways in which let's look are produced and transmitted. But um, the idea is that then once you have sort of made good on Yidam practice, you then have some 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 methods that align, uh, you know, substances, use of mantra, visualization, and meditative concentration for specific problems. Um, so, so there's sort of yidam specific ones. The Yutok Nyintik has a, has a beautiful letzel, which is really clearly sort of emphasizes healing. It sort of teaches almost a kind of Reiki-like energy healing, which I, I believe actually you, you attended some teachings on that with Dr. Nida, so, so you, you know what I'm talking about. And that's a very particular kind of letzok uh, for that collection of texts, that that tradition, you know, this kind of not by doctor tradition we we mentioned. Um, do, do you want me to tell a, a story about um, uh, about magical duels, not plus magical duels? Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, magical duels. Um, there is a lot of that. Yeah, that was actually the the reason I sort of that that got me into. Um, finding out more about Yeshi Dorje Rinpoche, the weather controller, because he tells this very, I mean, granted in translation, he tells this account of when he's sort of new to Nepal. And he's a weather controller, a professional weather controller. Um, and then it sort of comes to his attention that there's a Nepali Junkri, a shaman, uh, and a husband and wife team who do um, weather controlling that creates and uh, quell rain and hail and um, he's sort of he seems quite bothered by this of course I'm only going on this kind of uh, English translated account um, that uh, was sort of put into his memoirs Marshall Wolf uh, uh, put together several years back before he died um, but you know he talks about how uh, he was disturbed by this because the the Shaman and his wife, they relied on animal sacrifice, the slaughter of chickens, uh, to uh, manipulate the spirits connected with the weather. And as a Buddhist, he felt that this was very bad. Um, you know, I mean, a more cynical person could say this was turf wars, you know. It was a kind of, uh, um, uh, this was an issue of jurisdiction. And, uh, you know, Buddhist Tibetan lamas moving into nominally Buddhist or non-Buddhist areas. Um, one of the most common patterns we see is that lamas sort of subdue, just like Guru Rinpoche did. They, this continues to this day in border regions. You know, Tibetan lamas will will have encounters and battles with the the local uh, tutelary spirits who themselves have not been. Uh, made to swear uh, oaths or, or, or have not been sort of constrained into pacts. Um, 
to sort of uh, accommodate Buddhism or to work uh, with Buddhism as protectors. So um, we often hear the story of Guru Rinpoche coming to Tibet and then, you know, effectively systematically calling up all of the heavies, you know, basically rounding up the local mafia and letting them know that there's a, a new boss in town, you know, through the means of child spirit uh, mediums, through mirror divination, through, through other methods as well, um, and sort of uh, flexing muscle. Uh, but lamas will still do this. Um, when you chat to lamas, often lamas who travel are regularly encountered, they have regular encounters with local spirits, which they maybe ignore or, or come to some sort of agreement with, but um, especially if they're intending to to set up shop there or have some kind of activity. These the, There's a level of, of interactions that still continues to happen like this. Um, this is not some sort of legendary dynamic of the past. And so in, this, in, in the story of Yeshu Doji Rinpoche, um, he, he sort of expresses some anxiety about the fact that uh, chickens are being slaughtered and this is sort of unethical as a Buddhist. Um, but also that, you know, he, he has superior methods for, for weather control. So he talks about performing rites uh, with the help of protective spirits and um, sending out, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know what the original Tibetan was, so I, mean, I, I can't work out what exactly what rites he may have done. But I assume he sent out some kind of emanations towards the shaman and his wife and he, he explains that shortly afterwards there was a flash flood and um, the whole village was rained out. But more specifically, the shaman's and his wife's house was utterly destroyed. All of their belongings were drenched and sort of washed out of the house. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, the wife was sort of temporarily paralyzed. Um, they were kind of driven slightly mad and, and as a result driven out of the village. Um, and so these kinds of competitive dynamics might might seem very unsavory to us, but you know they are certainly a part of, of local histories. Uh, there are many stories in Repcon and other places where you know significant communities of Nakba exist, where even internal competition takes place between tantric specialists. You know, the the Nakba on this side of the river, the Nakba on that side of the river, or rivalry over a partner or uh, uh, a wife or a tantric sex partner, and, um, magical battles that ensue as a result of this. Um, maybe disappointingly uh, worldly for some, but it's certainly uh, it's certainly a feature of uh, not burst stories. Um, it's a feature of of the of the exploits of, like I said, the original not of Tibet too, and. Um, yeah, I mentioned in my dissertation how uh, in the sort of more closer to contemporaneous, the closest things we have to contemporaneous sources for for uh, Guru Rinpoche sort of describe a really troubled relationship that he has with centralized state authority. Um, they sort of, they, they recognize his thaumaturgical ability, um, but they're also deeply threatened by it. And so in the Bashe, in this... Uh, a history that we have, this fairly old history, uh, Padmasambhava is described as coming to Tibet for a short stint, doing uh, magical, various magical activities, subduing local forces in a sort of helpful way, and then being chased out by the Tibetan ministers 
um, on pain of death because they assume that someone with these powers will ultimately attempt to usurp the throne. And, you know, in these kind of mythical accounts, Padmasambhava the Nakba is sort of <laughs> presented as saying in this very interesting way, I'm a, I'm a tantric Buddhist. Why would I be seeking temporal power? You, you clearly don't understand anything about what I'm doing here and why. Um, but yeah, he gets chased out um, and, and actually has to use uh, his uh, nubha, his, his tantric power, to uh, freeze some, some armies who are sent after him, who send a volley of arrows after him, his, like, you know, his, his fleeting back. So there's, even in the original tale of the, of the Tibetan uh, paradigmatic nakba, there's these interesting dynamics around tantric efficacy, the sort of moral ambiguity of, uh, of uh, tantric sor sorcery, uh, its usefulness to, to state authorities, but also uh, the challenge it poses because it's outside of those categories or, or frameworks as well. Um, so yeah. Ben, that's so fascinating. Uh, next time, I'd love to dive into the sections of your dissertation to do with sex and to do with gender. There's very interesting research you've done into female Nagpa. Are there such a thing? How is that whole thing viewed? Also, you've done fascinating research into the complexities around sexual intercourse as it's used in, in that tradition. So thank you very much. And I look forward to diving into that on the next edition. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.